Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I am Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the new master by Lord Dunsany. It's first published in a book, a collection called The Little Tales of Smethers and Other Stories uh, from 1952. But uh, we're reading it out of Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, February 1955. And um, you don't see a lot of uh, Lord Dunsany in Ellery Queen. Um, this is a crime story in a certain sense, maybe a mystery story, a whodunit, maybe. <laughs> or maybe maybe you don't see it that way. Um but uh, this story is kind of a science fiction story as well, possibly. Um, but it most reminds me of a story we've done for the podcast called um, Moxon's Master by uh, Ambrose Bierce, which is from 1899. And um, just thinking about reading this story again and thinking, like, I thought of it as soon as I started reading it. Oh, this is Moxon's Master, except by Lord Dunsany. And, uh, you know... Bierce was a contemporary of of uh, Don Saney's, but uh, he also died, presumably, way earlier. So, you know, 50 years on, Lord Don Saney has got a story that is a lot like an Ambrose Bierce story in that it's a story of a chess robot that possibly kills its owner slash creator. So I was... Um, I was very taken by that. Uh, we've, we've done a number of Lord Dunsany stories in the past. I mean, is he number one in our list of uh, persons? Probably not, but he's pretty close to the top. I, I'm counting uh, five stories we've done in the past, or uh, maybe one's a poem. Um, nope, they're all stories. So, uh, were you surprised by this story when you first read it? No. Um, Have you seen stories what? like this? Uh, like Mo- Moxon's Masters is basically... Uh, it's the same thing, except done differently, right? Well... I guess I want to know what you're driving at here, Jesse. Um, do you think that the way into this story is to think of it as being part of a tradition of similar stories? That's not how I looked at it. Yeah, but I, if it is, I'd like to have you develop that a bit. Well, I'm just, I'm just, um, uh, like the first time I read it, I, I thought this is Moxon's master. That is, it's a story of a guy who has a chess robot. Uh, there's a narrator who's outside of this relationship with the chess robot, and who says, um, "I think the chess robot killed that guy," uh, <laughs> um, and yet. Uh, I don't think in my reading of Moxon's Master I have any doubts as to that sort of story exactly. Although I think we're supposed to have doubts. Whereas in this one, I don't think we're supposed to have doubts. And yet I have doubts the more I read it. Um, There's some funny Uh. things going on in this story. And because it's in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, they picked it up from this book and said, this is for us. Uh, but I know Ellery Queen magazine pretty well, and they don't just pick things just because it's got a famous author. They usually have a have a method to their madness, at least in this period. If you don't mind, I think I'd like to stick to the story sure. at hand first. Mm-hmm. 
and and see whether or not it's, it's useful to you. It still seems useful to you to talk about it in relation to the Ambrose Beer story. This story, just to make clear for people who haven't read it yet, um, the story is told by a narrator who is nameless. Um, he lives on one side of a little village called Otbury in England, and on the other side of uh, it lives a man with a bizarre name, mm-hmm. Alibi Methic. Um, they are the only two regular members of the Otbury Chess Club, uh, which is not a very famous club because it's just a few little, it's a few people who get together in this little town to play chess. But there are enough; they are clubby enough that they have uh, pooled their resources to rent the schoolroom, and uh, that's where they get to meet in the evenings if they choose to. But the only regular meter. Um, is the, with the narrator is this this Alibi, um, who always loses pretty much, mm-hmm. but he loses with good grace. It turns out though that living a simple life, he has enough excess funds coming in from uh, his his investments, his properties that we gather he's inherited. He doesn't really work in his life that he's been investing in the development of something that amazes him and that he wants to show off to the narrator. It is, as you say, a chess-playing machine. I think it's worth understanding how this machine works. The, the, Alibi has in his small home just one table. But we're told that like many men who live alone, one table serves for all purposes. Mm. This table has in it, it's a wooden top, and it has a chessboard built into the table made of ebony and boxwood, so black and white squares. And in each square is a hole into which can fit a a metal prong at the base of a chess piece. So you can move chess pieces around by putting them in these holes like a traveling chess set. And apparently the narrator can see through these holes to see that there are wires down below. So you start this whole process going by taking a piece and pushing it into one of these holes. But on the side opposite where um, Alibi would sit when he's using the table to eat dinner, for example, um, there is a cabinet encased in walnut Mm -hmm. that looks like it might be an old-fashioned radio or even the case for a television. Now, this is 1952, and in those days, televisions often came with closable cases, Mm -hmm. uh, the way you can sometimes find the... uh, television in a closable cabinet in hotels these days mm-hmm. um, so basically you can sit opposite this blank wooden uh, panel and see chess pieces arrayed between you and it it turns out it is a chess player it has 10 highly flexible arms coming out from this uh, box wooden box that sits opposite the player and those ten wooden arms, nine, uh, ten flexible arms, nine of them are to cover different areas of the chessboard, which is basically the whole table. And one of them is to remove chess pieces and move them to the side as they get taken. Turns out there is a chess-playing genius in there, a mechanical genius. It is smarter in intellect than anyone as a chess player. But our narrator notices that it's petulant. Mm. 
mm-hmm. it gets arrogant when it wins. As it gets closer and closer to winning, it slams its, the pieces down when it moves them. It, it's almost as if it were haughty and laughing at you, although it's not making any other sounds, but it's a whirring uh, as the inner mechanisms function. What happens in the course of the story is that um, our narrator um, explain, says that he doesn't think that this is a, a, a good thing to have around uh, because it, it's, you know, its emotions are all off. But um, the narrator, but uh, Alibi says uh, he doesn't care about that. He's only interested in its intellect mm-hmm. as if chess were a question only of intellect. Now, I should say that when we first get this, we are told, right, um, in the very first paragraph, that the narrator is saying, you know, I don't think I really could prove to anyone that what I say is the case. And it turns out that what he is talking about is, should I speak the whole truth at a coroner's inquest? So we're set up to think something bad is going to happen, and sure enough, eventually, um, Alibi is dead. He, uh, and it turns out that he's dead because he has been poisoned by some acid. And our narrator figures out that on a previous trip, he has seen this, the battery acid that could have been re, uh, refreshed for the radio that sometimes Alibi listens to, but he stopped part way. That is, the that table, which is used for everything, sometimes holds this big boxy radio because after chess, Alibi's second enthusiasm is, is classical music. What the narrator concludes is that perhaps... This arrogant, jealous um, chess-playing machine couldn't stand the idea that Alibi was paying attention to the radio. Mm-hmm. He was jealous of the radio. And so at a point when Alibi had left out a beaker of acid to refresh the wet battery in the radio, without thinking, of, without Alibi's noticing it, one of those chess-playing hands... Those tentacles came out and tipped a little bit of the sulfuric acid into the coffee cup that was on the table, and that's how the fellow died. But is that really what happened? Mm. And should he tell the truth? So the story ends with us asking questions. Did I know the plot going in? Absolutely. Was it because of Moxon's monster? I don't know. Mm. You know, I first mm. read this. I first read this story already well into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a 1952 story. I didn't find it a surprise at all. Right. Uh, But I can see why it could be in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, because ultimately we recognize that one of the main questions of this story is, what are our obligations in speaking at a coroner's inquest? (laughs) What is the nature of evidence? How much can we say is truth, and how much can we say is belief? In that sense, I think the story fits very nicely with Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Mm -hmm. However, I would also say that 
the the notion that one needs to be concerned not only with the the mind but the emotions the head and the heart is precisely the kind of plea that H.G. Wells made consistently in his science fiction. The the Martians in The War of the Worlds are all intellect, no heart. Mm-hmm. We metaphorically know they have no heart because they need to be vampires and live on blood. They can't make blood work on their own. In work after work of H.G. Wells, we see this dichotomy between the head and the heart and the right situation for the whole person is to somehow integrate them. What Allaby has done, who likes both the intellect in the chess playing machine and the emotions captured by the music he plays, uh, he hears on the radio, he's enthusiastic about getting all of Beethoven's symphonies over the course of several days. Allaby has both these things, but he's made the mistake of thinking intellect could be enough in his partner. And by not taking account of the whole of this thing, um, he becomes the object of its jealousy. Mm. So we could read this as as a mystery story. We could read it as a philosophical story. We could read it as a science fiction story. Mm -hmm. And all three of those seem to me perfectly fine, even though I understood what the the plot was going to be um, from the very beginning. Well, mm-hmm. I thought that Alibi would be strangled by those, yeah, the, I those, expected those that hands. Too. Yeah, I didn't expect the battery acid, and that's a lovely twist. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, no. But on rereading, even knowing what was coming, it held up for those different it reasons. Does. Yeah, it does. Um, there, one of the things you you've been doing, and uh, it's not the way I've been pronouncing it, but if you look at the words on the page, um, it's you were calling him Alibi, um, which is how it should be pronounced. However, uh, with a last name that's so strange as well, Methic is what you called him. Um, uh, the first time I saw his name is like Alibi Methic is what I saw, and I'm like, that's not a normal name. That's not a human name that I've ever heard. Um, so I started questioning things and then i didn't come away the first reading saying oh definitely uh i'm questioning things at the end because i'm with the narrator um but then when i reread and then i i i want to read the editorial introduction which i think uh, sort of twisted my um my first perception of what this story maybe what this story isn't doing or what it is so it goes like this: Lord Dunsany is in a tip. Uh, Lord Dunsany in typical Dunsanian mood. The tale of an impossible crime, but is it really impossible in this atomic age? We wonder. The author once summed up his philosophy of life in just seven words: "The wolf is always at the door, but sometimes the wolf appears in strange guise, in sheep's clothing, or even masquerading as a machine with ten arms and ten flexible steel hands." And that is uh, pretty much the description of the machine, right? Ten, uh, ten mm-hmm. arms, ten hands. Um, I was wondering why of the ten, and in the internal explanation for the story. Uh, one was for each each piece, um, and no, this, uh, each, each each area of the board. I right. Think. Yeah, and then so uh, it, a chessboard is uh, sixty four squares, eight by eight, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was thinking maybe it would have 16, uh, one for each piece, or it would have two. Um, and he actually says, the narrator says within the story, that it needed at least two for castling, which is when you pick up two pieces at the same time, you move your cat, your king and your rook. Um, but I was wondering, like, why not eight or why not six? Like, why ten? And uh, it says right in the title, hands. But actually, it's more like fingers. I have ten fingers, right? And when I use, uh, when I play chess, I use two fingers to pick up a piece, maybe three. But I don't use, you know, all ten of my fingers. Even if I was castling, I wouldn't use all ten. So it seems like this is... Uh, an odd number. So that was a little odd. Um, there's a number of odd things and, and some of them are just beautiful writing. And like, I think it's just the master of Dunsany. You know, he, he is the new master in a certain sense, but, um, it opens with this. I have, uh, I'll just read the opening and then I'll, I'll, I want to pick up some things in here. So I cannot prove my case. I have been over everything very carefully. I have had a talk with a lawyer about evidence in coroner's courts without letting him know what I really I was really after. And after long consideration, I have decided to give no evidence at all, or as little as I can. This will mean that my friend Alibi Mithik will be found to have taken his own life, and no doubt they will say that his mind was temporarily deranged. If they do call me, I shall do all I can to imply that he suffered from undue mental stress. This is all I can do for him. I know that I... That's... I'm just seeing more things here again. I I know that I shall be sworn to tell the whole truth. But what is the use of that if no one will listen? And I might even be considered deranged myself. And that's the end of the first paragraph. Then the next paragraph starts, The whole truth is this. Alibi Mythic and I belong to the Oddbreak Chess Club. And he describes their relationship. But in rereading, I noticed, like, well, it sounds like he thinks he might be called at this coroner's inquest. And that he thinks that they're going to rule, if he doesn't give any evidence, or if he gives minimal evidence, that it he will be ruled a suicide. And he's going to back that up, which is, in if I would say, lying, Right? He, he's being deceptive, but more importantly, I would say he's lying be, by saying he was suffering from undue mental stress because he didn't seem to be suffering stress at all. Um, it was the narrator who was suffering stress at the relationship he used to have with his friend, Alibi Mythic. And Alibi, a.k.a. Alibi, um, and Mythic, making me think stupid, me stupid, right? Me dumb. Um made me think that maybe this is not a science fiction story at all. Maybe it's a murder mystery in which the narrator is the murderer. And Mm. I don't think that that's fully supported, but I don't think it's, I I don't, I mean, he says, and I might even consider deranged myself if he argued that the robot killed him. Now, What's funny is there's a number of setups throughout the story that I think are just, you know, the brilliance of Dunsany's writing. So one of the things he does is he talks about the town they live in, Otbury. You mentioned this. Um, they they're, um, they walk through the town, right? 
and to each other. And, and then here's the description of the second column of the first page. Methick lived about a mile on one side of Otbury, and I a little more than that on the other. So they're actually opposite sides of the town, right? One mm-hmm. is uh, on one side and one is on the other. And then you mentioned it and it made me think again. Um, I'm going to just quote you here. One table serves for all purposes. So a chessboard is a table. And there's a lot made. And Dunsany, you know, is a famous... He was famous for being good at many things, including writing and poetry. Um, he was also a sword master and also a chess master, in, having invented several forms of chess. And uh, Indeed, he was the national champion in Ireland. <laughs> He's an extraordinary man. And one of the things we're seeing here is, I think, how this is a fairly light story. Uh, it doesn't feel as light as perhaps it could be. But it's it's a it's a light subject in that it's a you know standard murder locked room murder mystery in a certain sense, um, but then I think that he might be like pretty clever about what's going on. He talks about um, the Otbury Chess Chess Club, which there seem to be about two members, right? So I read just <laughs> this. This is kind of strange. Um, so he says. Um, we used to play often on summer evenings, sitting down in the Oddbury schoolroom, which the chess club hired for its use. When the blackbirds were going to sleep and playing on till the nightingales in the briary thickets at the top of the down, there uh, were all in full song. So that's actually uh, sort of a preview of the music to come, I think. Um, and then he talks about where they live respective to each other. Our narrator has a wife, um... Mythic has no no other person other than a charwoman who comes in once in a while, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a number of lines that are so choice to this undercutted reading, I think, on the second page, on page 109. And, and chess players seldom argue, you know, just as heavyweight boxers do not slap each other's face when they chance to meet. The ring awaits to test them. Now, this is actually in response to their disagreeing about what moves are good and what moves are bad. This chess-playing robot seems to have moves that are unusual. And when its final moves are made in the, in the final match that we see, it opens, we're told, badly with each uh, pawn in front of uh, the rooks moving out. I don't, I don't know chess well enough to say that that's a bad move or not. But... Um, the test is in is is in the game itself, right? We get um, a description of that of that box, and I, I, we get a description of the of the board itself. The chessboard is squares of boxwood and ebony. Boxwood's light colored, and ebony is uh, dark colored wood, right? And then we get the description of the machine itself, which, as you say, we do not see the brain of. And its description is this. The vast brain before me was hidden, as human brains are hidden, through though instead of skull and skin, it was walnut that concealed it from the eye. Um, he plays against the machine, as his friend invites him to, and he feels it's a queer relationship. He says that word twice. It felt queer to sit opposite an act of powerful intelligence without ever being able to see its eyes or face. 
it felt even queerer not to be able to get insight into its character, as you are able to do sometimes with human beings from its long, delicate hands. And then he describes the hands. Now, we're told that he beats Methic on almost a regular occasion, and Methic, or Methic, has, doesn't react in a bad way. He takes it uh, in his stride. Um, but he has now lost his opponent in his chess club to this robot. It's almost like um, he has somebody at home, just like our narrator is supposed to have. And so when the final confrontation comes, or the final meeting comes, we've got uh, him saying to his wife, you know, it's been too long since I've... I need to go out and see Mythic. And his wife says, you haven't been going to see him lately. And, I'm, and he says, yes, uh, that's, that's true, and that's why I must go. So he goes, and we see that situation where he's paying attention to the radio and prepping it and uh, getting its battery ready for a Beethoven concert, and we see the final loss, or at least what we, what we think is the final loss, where Mythic plays against the computer, and it opens badly. It has bad movements, and it loses to Mythic. Um, then he says at the end, oh, the reason I won is because I hadn't oiled it. Um, interesting. Uh, if it's... It doesn't seem to be a good explanation for why it would intellectually lose. That would be a reason why it would poorly move. He says, I forgot to oil it. I was the last man who saw Mythic alive, and so I must attend the inquest. He died of poison sulfuric acid, which he drank with his coffee. There is no doubt of that. Is it in any use of my telling this story in court? Will the coroner or his jury believe that one machine could be jealous of another machine and angry at not having been given its due ration of oil? Well, they, be well, they believe that one of those steel arms, will they believe that one of those steel arms reached over while Methick was not looking, picked up the jar of acid and quietly tipped some into his coffee? I think not. Nobody will believe that. That's a terrible alibi, isn't it? If he is the one who did it, and he says, no, no, it was his chess-playing robot. Well, we're getting this whole story from his point of view. And his point of view is that this robot was the one that was angry. Not that he was angry. And yet we wouldn't think that there's any reason to blame this robot other than the narrator saying it was the one that had a problem. And he gives a long uh, reflection on the mechanization and tooling of humans and are come to dominate and master the world. And he says that this chess playing robot is just such a, uh, a device. He says, now something was loose that was mightier than man, capital M. I saw that machines were already becoming the masters, taking from man his domination over the earth. But it, in, in reading it again, I, I just got the sense that maybe this is all a... I mean, why is he even telling this story to us? It's almost like he's thinking to himself, will anybody buy this crappy explanation for why, why I'm not responsible for his murder? No, no, they'll just think it's, they'll just think it's a suicide. And I'll have to support that by saying that he was troubled, even though he says it was not. And that we know at the beginning that he is going to lie 
in the inquest. So I, I might be overreading it, but I, I, I think he, he's done something here that's pretty impressive because I didn't get that sense when I read uh, Ambrose Bierce. I, um, I, I hear you, Jesse, and I, I can see why on a, a multiple reading, a second, third, fourth, whatever reading, um, you might come up with this uh, dull Occam's razor a little bit so mm. that you don't go right for the, the quickest, most obvious explanation. And I can see why you might want to think that. One of the reasons I'm willing to entertain your view here is that I have not been able to come up with a reasonable situation that motivates the narrator speaking to us. Mm-hmm. I don't know who we are. Um, we're not his wife, obviously, no. since he mentions the wife uh, in third person. I don't know why he's telling us these things, but I do know that he is pondering. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's sometime between the discovery of Methic, of Alibi's body and the inquest. So it, it's not years later. Um, it may well be that uh, he, he is trying to provide him, the narrator is trying to provide himself an alibi mm-hmm. by allowing the circumstances uh, that would speak to suicide to be accepted. On the other hand, it may be that he doesn't want to interfere with this notion of suicide because he doesn't want to have people investigate that machine that's in Alibi's house. Because Alibi, we are told at some length, has supported the development of this machine. It is a unique machine in the world. And the narrator is very much against having the machines supplant humans. So he may be quiet in order to preserve the uh, anonymity of the uh, of the machine, keep it unknown mm. uh, to anybody. Uh, then the still little question though becomes, well, why why tell us? And I think I don't know who we are, but I think I have some other possible motivation. One of the things that sets this apart as a really well-written story mm-hmm. to me is this paragraph beginning on page 112 um, when uh, the narrator proposes to uh, Alibi that the the haughtiness and anger and, and arrogance of the uh, of the machine the chess playing machine may in fact be jealousy jealous said Methic mm-hmm. yes I said There are two kinds of jealousy. One is wholly despicable, resenting all superiority. People suffering from that kind would hate an archbishop for his sanctity. But there is another kind with which it might be easier to sympathize, the kind that does not like inferiority and that cannot tolerate it when it is in power. Suppose the machine should ever feel that way, Look at all we have got, and it has nothing. Look at all we can do, and it can only sit there and play chess when you put out the pieces. A mind like that, compelled to play second fiddle, notice the music analogy mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Right, he likes the radio. Do you think it would like it? I suppose not, said Methic. 
then why leave that knife where it can reach it? I said. He's talking about a knife that's on the te- on the table. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the narrator may be trying to remove the knife. He's trying to stay say as little as possible at the coroner's inquest because nobody is going to think to investigate this blank walnut case mm-hmm. and get rid of that thing and keep humanity safe. Uh, I really think that the distinction between two kinds of jealousy is extraordinary. It's really good. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder if maybe because the narrator believes in the wholeness of a fully developed human being, he thinks of this chess-playing machine as inferior, and yet it can beat us. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he doesn't have the wholly despicable kind of jealousy, but he is, in fact, jealous of the chess-playing machine and wants it to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I still don't know why he's talking to us. Yeah, it fits perfectly nicely. On on page one twelve, you're right. You're right about that. That I, I I almost you know in the end of Moxon's Master, the chess playing machine is destroyed by fire. Um, here we don't know its disposition. Um, it will go to his estate. Maybe maybe our narrator will inherit. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But what we do know is that there are a number of weird relationships in this, including the name. I think that that's the the thing that started me down this path. But on page 112, there's another paragraph that's extraordinarily interesting. And it starts, I saw then that we were on different sides. Well, that's again, that chess image, right? One person on one side, the other on the other side. And one makes a move and the other makes a move. Um, He wanted to show what his wonderful machine could do. I wanted to see if, see man, capital M, hold his place up that no machine could be able to usurp. It was no use to say any more. We had both lost interest now in playing each other, but Methic asked me to come to his house again, and this I gladly did. For the more uneasy I became, the more I wanted to see how far the machine had got. I had always felt that we could hold our own against everything but thinking. But now this machine was a deeper thinker than we. There was no doubt of it. There is nothing I know in the world that is a surer test of sheer intellect than the chessboard. And that got me to thinking that this might be exactly in the Ellery Queen style of game-playing fiction, that Dunsany has set forth a chess move, and we, as readers, are responding to it. Are we clever enough to see what he's doing, where he's moving the pieces? Alibi Mythic makes me think that he is tipping his hand to let us... He's playing fair. He's saying, not everything is as the narrator, who we know will be unreliable at the inquest, is saying is true. And um, <laughs> I think that that's just brilliant. Even if, even if he isn't explicitly doing that, he's right. There are a number of points in the story where I'm going, that's true. There is nothing in the world that is a sure test of sheer intellect than the chessboard. I don't know if that's true, but I do know that a lot of people think that. They do. And this is put forward in a way that even non-chess players 
can understand that they need to think further about the implications. The, the, the connection between narrative interpretation and thinking out the patterns of a chessboard, really, I think, quite good in both cases. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.